0: You may remember we used a diagram, right? We've used a couple of diagrams so far. One of them has this great name, the Wesleyan quadrilateral. That's the square-looking one. More recently, we've been using one that I've decided to call the stray hand bullseye. You know, because I think that's catchy. Um, We'll come back to to those and, and, and talk about how they can help us Um, have better informed conversations when we're talking about theology so we don't want you to forget those we also don't want you to think that those are the secret to living a good Christian life they're they're just tools for helping us map how we think and how we act but today what we want to sort of get back to and Josh um, will take over from this point is that notion of, of the dramatic logic of Scripture. If you've been here most weeks, you, you sort of know what I'm talking about, but if you skipped a couple, it's important to remember that what we're talking about is, is the overarching story, narrative, that helps us understand who God is. The Bible is a book. Everything in that book is designed in some way, shape, or form Sometimes more obviously than others, to help us understand who God is and who we are in His story. Today we're going to be talking about the life of Christ, that that part of Scripture. Um, and we encourage you, if you have questions, don't be shy um, to ask those questions. But that's where we'll be
1: today.
2: Thank
1: you. Making sure he got it going. Uh, Lauren leaned over and told me I better double check. So, I oh, teach her uh,
0: and so she knows. <laughs>
1: um, all right, a little bit of a shameless plug. If you're, we've had some questions about uh, how do we do this maybe with children. Uh, so my wife and I uh, wrote a little Advent book um, that my mom illustrated. So I, I don't feel too bad making a plug for this because. Um, I think we make about two dollars a copy and with hundreds of hours in it so' we're right now we've made about half a minimum wage. Uh, so this is we're not making anything off of this but um, this is a uh, 25 day countdown to Christmas that goes through the, the story of Israel. so it's a way it's one of the ways that Lauren and I have tried to bring my Lauren uh, that's confusing right uh, have tried to bring our kids. Uh, into the biblical story so that it becomes part of how they're learning to see the world. So we spend 25 days uh, anticipating the birth of Christ and trying to relive, so to speak, Israel's uh, story as we await that. So there's uh, Amazon. So it's like 12 bucks or something on Amazon. Um, so uh, there's, there's um, uh, illustrations for every day for the kids to color, little ornaments in the back. For them to do what's called a Jesse tree, uh, devotional thought for parents, devotional thought for kids, uh, a little fun exercises in there. So, um, anyway, is there a test? Is there a test? Uh, Yeah, my kids have not gone to eat dinner in a while because they keep failing, and that's how we do it. Um, So, uh, when I was talking to, so I'm the primary teacher today. Lauren's going to be the primary teacher next week when I'm gone talking to Matt about uh, advice on preparing for today, and he said try to prepare less material than you think you're going to need, which uh, was his way of saying you keep going too long and saying too much. (laughs) Um, uh, He couched it in nicer language than that. So we've we've gone through much of Israel's history in this class. So we started with creation uh, through fall or decreation, however you want to talk about that. Uh, The rise of Israel and the fall of Israel. We ended last week with Israel going into exile. Uh, The southern kingdom falls uh, to Babylon and uh, 5, what is that? Well, it's, it's, uh, it's, what is that? 721 721 is, 721 is the Assyrians take the northern kingdom. 586, 586. there we go, 586, yes. There, yeah, so. Babylon takes the southern kingdom in 586. So, So,
0: ah, okay, in
1: stages, all right. Let me rewind this. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, Cyrus comes along uh, with the Persian Empire. Israel returns in this uh, somewhat subdued fashion, trying to rebuild. Uh, Later, uh, Alexander the Great comes along. Uh, and brings in Greek culture, takes over for just a little bit in Israel. This is why the New Testament's in Greek, why so much of, of uh, the Greek culture is uh, present as we are getting into the New Testament. And then Alexander's uh, empire breaks apart. You get some infighting among his generals. Um, eventually, the I think it's the Seleucid uh, group takes over. Not for long, though, because the Jews revolt. You have the Maccabean Revolt. And that lasts about a century. And then Rome comes in and establishes dominance and puts uh, their own king on the throne in Israel. Uh, And then here we are um, with uh, the birth of Christ. So Israel's gone through a lot. Exile, a little bit of hope of uh, independence with the Maccabean Revolt. That gets uh, knocked down with uh, Rome. And so Rome is in charge, and they're even, in some ways, in charge of who's on the throne in Israel. So uh, this, is, this is where Jesus enters into the story or enters onto the scene. Um, we talked last week about the gospel of sin management maybe being too narrow and needing something bigger. And I think that the, the New Testament authors, the gospel authors help, help point us towards that. So if we think about the virgin birth that Matthew um, that Matthew narrates, Matthew says uh, that Jesus' Uh, birth to a virgin, is fulfilling the prophecy from Isaiah. Look, a virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. This is an interesting thing for Matthew to say that is being fulfilled uh, through Jesus' um, birth, because uh, when Isaiah uh, quotes this prophecy, uh, a virgin will give birth to a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel. Uh, the original prophecy was not specifically directed to uh, a Messiah that's going to be coming several hundred years later. Instead, uh, the original prophecy, even the baby's interrupting me. Um, <laughs> the original prophecy uh, was spoken uh, to, um, let me get my thoughts together. Just getting up with a baby has got, got me a little bit uh, <laughs> slow. Um, so in Isaiah, it represents God's promise to the king of Judah, who was at that time under attack, that God would bring deliverance and judgment soon. Um, the prophecy seemed to say that God would intervene before a virgin, or which can also mean young lady in Hebrew, becomes pregnant, bears a child, and that child is old enough to know right and wrong. So the original prophecy is God saying, before this woman has a baby, and that baby's old enough to know right from wrong, God will bring deliverance. So this is not originally... Um, a clear prophecy about um, the Messiah that's going to come several hundred years later. So when we get to Matthew, and Matthew says uh, the prophecy is fulfilled that a virgin will give birth to a son, it's as though Matthew is training us to see that Jesus isn't just kind of uh, fulfilling some predictions. You have all these scattered predictions in the Old Testament that are only about the Messiah. Instead, Jesus is filling full Israel's story. What God had promised, that he was going to bring deliverance before a young lady has a baby, uh, now he's bringing into even more fullness. That God is not simply going to bring deliverance, but he's going to bring the deliverer. And not just before a young lady has a baby, but before a virgin has a baby. And when God says you'll name him Emmanuel because it represents God being with us, now in even fuller fashion, God is with us in the person of Jesus Christ. So I point that out. Uh, because I think Matthew is, is teaching us then that what's going on in Israel is, is leading us up to Jesus in, in profound ways. So that we then look at Jesus and we kind of look backwards. We look backwards at the Old Testament story and think, how is this preparing for Christ? And how will this find even greater fullness um, in his life? So if we think back to the story uh, that we have, um, we've covered so far in this class, we have Adam. Remember Adam and Eve, created in the image of God. And now, filling this full is the true and full image of God among us. Adam was given a um, a vocation to care and rule. And here comes one who will show the greatest care and the greatest kind of kingly rule. Abraham was given this promise of land and descendants, that he would be a blessing to the nation, that kings would come through him, and that he was to walk before God and be blameless. And now here comes one who is walking before God and is fully blameless, who is not just a king, but king of kings. Abraham was to get land. Jesus is redeeming the whole groaning creation. Abraham was to be a blessing to the nations. Jesus is going to be an even greater blessing, not just to some nations, but to all uh, the Israelites and the Gentiles you see this kind of filling full that's happening Israel was to be a kingdom of priests Uh, and here is Jesus filling full Israel story if we think of Israel being delivered at the Exodus they go into the wilderness they are there for 40 years and they experience certain temptations Jesus goes into the wilderness 40 days experiences certain temptations and when Jesus quotes scripture to the devil he quotes from Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 8. These scriptures from Israel's wilderness wandering. It's like he's saying what Israel was meant to be, how they were meant to live, how they were meant to be faithful, Jesus is embodying. He is uh, showing Israel who they are meant to be. Uh, the law, uh, the Old Testament's uh, Torah, it was teaching people how to love God and love neighbor. It was giving them insight into how to repair what sin has broken socially, physically, and spiritually. And then Jesus comes onto the scene and shows even fuller what it means to love God and love neighbor. Even more fully what it means to to uh, pursue social, physical, and spiritual restoration. In fact, Jesus comes and gives something like a new law. Not because the old is bad, but because he's bringing something fuller. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Right? Do not murder, that's good. But even more than that, uh, do not have this kind of hatred in you. Not only do not commit adultery, Absolutely, that law is good, but even more than that, uh, do not lust in your heart. The kings, we saw this particularly last week, the kings are those who are not supposed to put their hope in um, possessions and money, not supposed to put their hope in military power, not supposed to put their hope in foreign alliances, and here comes Jesus onto the scene, who will not trust in riches, but will become, will be born poor will not trust in military might like the other so-called messiahs in that time, mm-hmm. who no one knows about now, Simon Bar Kokhba, Simon Bar Giora, anyone worship him? Mm. No, these are military messiahs mm. that are forgotten to uh, all but some historians, but the one who comes uh, and lays down his life is changing, changed and continues to change the world. Um, the kings were supposed to treat their subjects justly, and we have one who comes and treats his subjects in the most merciful and sacrificial way. So, uh, what what I'm trying to begin helping us see is that uh, when Jesus enters into this, uh, he is he is helping us understand what Israel was meant to be about. He is filling full their story, and he is doing so much more than um, than fulfilling some scattered predictions. So, if you if we if we look at the Old Testament and only proof texts, things that might point to Jesus, then we're missing the larger thing that's going on there. This is part of the reason why last week I um, I was talking about how the gospel of sin management, where Jesus' primary mission was to die for the forgiveness of our sins, is not a big enough story. Uh, that it's part of the story certainly. That we needed forgiveness. Don't don't mishear me. Uh, but But when God created Adam, he didn't create Adam just so he could later forgive him, but he created Adam so that he might have a certain vocation. Uh, And as he calls Abraham and Israel and gives the law and kings, they weren't just there to um, be stopgaps for forgiveness to come later, Uh, but they were also to be participating in the work and the mission of God. Uh, And then when Jesus shows up, certainly he brings forgiveness, but he also breaks the power of sin, um, which we'll get to in a little bit. Uh, so that we might better fulfill our calling, um, I equated it to um, how uh, the show lost, didn't finish well, and I got a lot of uh, a lot of uh, harsh critique for that um, by uh, simple-minded people.
2: Uh, yeah, but
1: I won't mention their names. <coughs> Kevin, <coughs> Katie. Um,
2: yeah.
1: Uh, but before we maybe get into his ministry a little bit more, um, Lauren, you have anything on the Incarnation? or? Um...
2: Um, and I get to talk next week more, but I, I think I like what Josh is highlighting, that, um, that Christ is the fulfillment of Israel. At, so there's something, and then also highlighting the newness. So I think that's an interesting tension we find when you look at Christ. How is he the fulfillment of what has come before, but also the breaking in of the new? And one way to think about that is that um, Christ, what what we find in him is the future breaking into the present, but um, he's also the fulfillment and the renewal of a community rather than the beginning of a brand new one. Mm -hmm. He's a renewal, renewing a community that already exists. So that gives us a lot of resources for thinking about our mission because it's like when we forget to read the Old Testament, we're missing out on a bit like the huge clue to what our mission is as the church. So, yeah. Excellent.
1: Matt.
0: So, just to recap, I think what I heard Lawrence say: when we look at Jesus, it's important to hold to hold that tension in place. On the one hand, he, he brings something new. You said it's, it's the breaking into now something that's it's brand new. But at the same time, what we see are it's incumbent upon us to also recognize that it's not merely brand new, but it's it's also, it brings the past back in a different way that makes it complete. Am I understanding you right? And you have to have both of those notions to understand the role that Christ plays with regard to the law, for example, and also
1: with regard to now. So uh, to think about how to talk about Jesus' ministry in uh, one or two Sundays, uh, I'm going to give the opening words of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark might be what we use as our focal point today. Jesus shows up in the Gospel of Mark and he says, the time has come. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. And then repent and believe the good news. So I'll focus, uh, or I'll use this as kind of my focus verse for what we're going to do today. We'll start at the end with, Good news, which we've talked about can also mean gospel, or can also be translated gospel. So what's the good news? Um, so in the, the Greco-Roman world, I just talked about the Greeks and the Romans showing up, uh, and they are influencing the Jewish culture, Jewish language. Uh, the language of gospel or good news can be language uh, to announce that a king has been born, or that a king has won a victory. And so you can already imagine how some of that language is is, uh, maybe um, anticipated uh, in the declaration of the gospel. In the Jewish world, um, this language of the good news shows up like in Isaiah, uh, blessed are the feet of the one who brings good news, who declares that our Lord reigns. So it could mean a king is born. So it might be Um, or a king to be is born, a king has won a victory, and that God reigns, and then we saw last week how Peter, or how the apostles, uh, talked about the good news that Jesus is the Messiah, or the Christ, and maybe you can already kind of put together how these things are all encapsulated in uh, who Jesus is and what he is accomplishing and has accomplished. Um, they're complementary uh, declarations. Uh, we also might consider on top of, as Jesus is proclaiming the good news, so here's how he opens up in Mark. The time has come, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news. In Luke, uh, Jesus' opening sermon, Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 4, he's in uh, Nazareth and um, And he reads from Isaiah. The the scroll of Isaiah is given to him. He opens it up. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim uh, freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So as Jesus in the Gospel of Luke comes and proclaims the gospel the good news, uh, he starts out by saying to preach, or he, as he says, this is fulfilled, good news to the poor. Um, When we hear this language, we tend to only associate it with uh, economically, you know, we think in those kind of terms, which is, uh, there is truth to that, that Jesus does come and care for those who have less money. Uh, But the way that, that the Gospel of Luke works itself out, where you see Jesus bringing good news to the poor, you see that it's not just good news for those who don't have money. Um, he even spells it out here. It's recovery of sight to the blind, release for the oppressed, uh, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus is going to go and care for the, the poor, socially and economically, those who are in bondage to sin, dickness, sickness, demons, and corrupt systems. Um, so, as Jesus proclaims the good news, and we're thinking a king is one of victory, God reigns, uh, that Jesus is the Messiah. Um, we're seeing this expectation that things are going to be healed and restored uh, as part of the good news. That, that what sin has corrupted, Jesus is going to make whole. So, believe the good news. Now we'll get to this language. The time has come. Um, the kingdom of God is near. And here and elsewhere, and throughout the New Testament, you get this sense that the kingdom of God uh, has already begun. It's already here in part. But it's also not yet fully realized. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Or and when, in uh, Luke 4, today this is fulfilled among you. And yet, throughout Jesus' ministry, and after he ascends into heaven, we still have the poor, we still have the broken, we still have sin, um, so what do we make of this? Well, this already begun, not yet fully realized is how many of us, um, try to make sense of this and the tension between it's here and it's not fully here is maybe getting to something of what Lauren was pointing to, that something is, has changed and is changing on a deeper level. It's as though another <laughs> dynamic is now at work in the world, uh, that wasn't before in quite this way. Pivotal shift is occurring in and through Jesus, a shift that will change the course of human history. So, Jesus enters the scene, proclaims the good news, and he's basically saying the world is changing because of what he's about. It's a pretty big claim. Um, So, uh, we go from uh, the time has come to this language here. The kingdom of God. Any clarification questions at this point? Uh, Covering most of Jesus' life in about 30 minutes. Yeah? Would this be what the Jews are hearing? Like, these specific things are tantamount to what the Jews are hearing? Well, so you've got a kind of, as I understand it, you've got some options for how people might hear this kind of language. Um, And so some things, like when you read the Gospel of John, or even in, in the synoptics where... You get the sense that they heard it, but they weren't sure what to do with it until later. And then it was like, oh, oh, I see. I kind of got it, but I wasn't really connecting the dots. So some of this is only really uh, noticeable in hindsight. Uh, Same with the Old Testament. The Old Testament meant something, but then in hindsight of what Jesus has done, it it, it takes on fuller meaning um, because the fullness has been revealed.
0: Even in the scene in Acts 1 where he's about to ascend into heaven, I said, Lord, will you restore the
1: kingdom now? Yeah, yeah. But it's still, still not quite. They're, they're just, they're mm-hmm. not yeah, and he has had to open the scriptures to them to see this. That's the end of Luke. Um, so they might begin to get what they couldn't fully get.
2: Wasn't there a lot of confusion about in Luke where he's kind of fusing together the two passages from Isaiah as far as the Jews thinking, it's our time to like reign and live? And he's like, no, I'm here to help these poor people and the Gentiles and... Guess yeah, so
1: there was definitely tension about what the kingdom of God might look like, or what the Messiah was going to do. A whole lot there. What? Uh, and so this is why you have some Messiahs showing up, and they're trying to do what the Maccabeans did. They're going to throw off uh, the Roman power, and they're going to reestablish the kingdom, as in this this kingdom where you know someone from the Davidic line is sitting on a throne in <coughs> the, the traditional way that they would understand it. Um, so absolutely, yeah. This is adds to the whole mystery. Uh, what do you mean you're going to die? king doesn't show up, and Peter's like, no, no, you're not going to get handed over and be killed. That's not how the Messiah does things. Um, and so he is helping them see what they can't quite see. Um, it's like they don't understand how powerful sin is, how pervasive it is, and how sin is ultimately going to have its back broken, um, that it's going to go through this path of, of sacrifice. Um, I yeah.
0: Don't think, is, there, is there not also a tension that sits up because there's expectation that this is going to happen soon, right? And so, and we, and yeah. there's, there's evidence in the scriptures that people thought it was happening. Mm-hmm. So why do anything else? Yeah. It's supposed to happen, and yet that was 2,000 years ago. And so I'm wondering if we, if there's still a tension where we expect that this could be imminent. Yeah. And I kind of get the feeling, for the most part, ah, we don't think so.
1: Yeah. It's hard to keep up that sense of expectancy for 2,000 years. <laughs> Uh, just, it is. Um, so it's what, Second Peter, uh, it's because of his patience that he's holding back. Um, which, you know, there there was. Is this about to happen? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, what you get in, um, Luke is more my specialty, you get this repeated teaching of the certainty of his return and the uncertainty of the timing. Um, and for many, they thought it was immediate. Right. And then it wasn't, yeah. Wasn't there a sense from Daniel's prophecy that the, the, the uh, king's decree to restore Jerusalem there would be a certain number of years and in some reckoning we're spot on that time right now so there was a sense of this could be it Um, I don't know on that okay. that one um, yeah I, I don't I don't know when all that gets dated and I'm just Daniel is one of the gaps in my biblical knowledge but if I'm fully honest, uh, if I'm, if I'm fully honest. Uh, so yeah I don't know I know that uh, you have like um, the group, you have groups who think that to prepare the way of the Lord, um, so you have John the Baptist uh, preparing the way for the Lord in the wilderness, um, and you have groups like the Qumran community who heard that to be, we go into the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord, whereas John the Baptist is in the wilderness preparing the way of the Lord. Um, so I think there is a lot of, there's expectation, but also ambiguity about how that gets done. And uh, Jesus is going to take a pretty uh, unique route. Oh, sorry. Pretty unique. That's a terrible... It's just unique. I've been told you can't put a very in front of unique. I apologize. I've adjusted your grade. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Appropriately so. Um, um, All right. So, uh, kingdom of God. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, uh, we say... Your kingdom come, your the will be done. So that's a great clue. What's the kingdom of God? It's where God's will is done. Is um, one way to begin getting at that. Uh, it's not simply a, um, another way of talking about the church, although the church is supposed to be a people who are embracing God's will and seeking to extend God's will. Uh, we might also think of the kingdom of God as something that's perfectly embodied by the king, the Messiah, by Jesus. Uh, And here's where um, I see what Jesus does in his ministry. uh, Showing us that the kingdom of God is near. It's going to be breaking into what Jesus is doing. uh, Picking up on that social, physical, and spiritual restoration that I keep coming back to. So, paying attention to Jesus' ministry, we see him pursuing social restoration. This is where uh, Jesus is consistently uh, caring for those on the margins, um, the disadvantaged, the overlooked, the scorned members of society. So in the first century world, uh, one's social status was determined by things like education, gender, lineage, money, religious purity, owning land. We have our own ways of, um, of uh, gauging people's status today. They had their own ways back then. And Jesus seems to show how petty uh, were those first century indicators of status. And I think uh, he, if we have eyes to see, uh, if we see through his eyes, rather, we would see how petty are our own 21st century standards of uh, determining people's worth and and how much they matter. And so what does Jesus do? He touches the untouchables. Why touch the leper when he can heal with a word? because touching the untouchable is a way of showing that they matter, uh, showing that they can be part of community. Uh, He eats meals with people he's not supposed to eat meals with, uh, and to eat meals to show solidarity. This is why people get so upset. It's not like, oh, he happens to sit at a table with them, but he's showing solidarity with the tax collectors and the sinners. He ministers to the Gentiles. He befriends women with disreputable pasts. and uh, reaches out to social pariahs. Why do this? If his ministry, or if Jesus only came to die, this doesn't make as much sense. But if what Jesus was doing is coming to bring restoration, uh, coming to to bring healing to what sin has corrupted, um, then we understand uh, that that part of this restoring people socially uh, is part of extending the will of God. So those of us who find ourselves um, as citizens of the kingdom of god we see that this continues to be an ongoing call for us as well we don't only spread the good news of forgiveness we also spread the good news of the restored community that we look forward to so that we uh, ideally are seeing beyond the silly status markers that we have today uh, and declaring instead no the truth about who you are is that you are son and daughter of god which means that you are my brother and my sister. More so than you are uh, rich or poor, you have this job or that job um, or whatever it might be. Uh, Jesus goes around doing uh, physical uh, restoration as well. Um, he uh, restores sight to the blind, dispels sickness, makes the lame walk, opens the ears of the deaf, raises the dead on more than one occasion. Why do this? Because we've seen that God created the world good. And then it was broken. And so Jesus is beginning to restore that brokenness. We are not um, following in the, um, the trajectory of Plato, uh, not P-L-A-Y-D-O-P-G-H, P-L-A-T-O, uh, where we think that the material world is bad and we long just to escape into the immaterial realm. And so what Jesus shows us is uh, he reminds <coughs> us that God created the world good. This is God's good world. And Jesus isn't abandoning it. He is healing it. So what is our role uh, as uh, citizens of the kingdom but to participate in this, to seek, to heal where we can, to care uh, for uh, the sick, to care for the broken creation as we can because we recognize this as part of God's good world and this is part of our Messiah's ministry and therefore part of our ministry as well. And then of course he brings spiritual restoration, forgiving sins uh, and uh, reconciling people back to God. <clears throat> And so um, if, if you have, on the one hand, a, um, an overemphasis sometimes on the spiritual side of things, we just want to get people saved and forgiven so they go to heaven, uh, and we forget sometimes about the social and physical side of things, um, you also have in Christian um, movements sometimes an overemphasis on the social side of things. We've got to pursue justice and, uh, and caring for the marginalized, and we forget uh, that we also need to deal with sin. Um, You can't fix uh, the broken social condition if sin is still reigning. And people don't only need to be restored to community, they need to be restored to God as well. So uh, he brings all of these together uh, in his ministry. So our understanding of the kingdom, um, it's characterized by social, physical, and spiritual restoration. The kingdom has begun breaking into the world in a new and decisive way through Jesus. But that full realization of the kingdom is yet to come. So, what do we do? Well, we are to, in light of this, repent and believe. We hear repent uh, too often and think, feel bad. Sometimes feeling bad is part of repentance. Uh, But it's about uh, reorienting, or proper orientation. We orient ourselves around Jesus' mission, around his way of seeing the world and being in the world. Um, So it's a it's a change of allegiance, almost. Um, and then believe, we should think of as trust. So let me, let me do my best to pretend like, um, uh, or to, uh, to give honor to the uh, Church of Christ heritage um, of the, the five steps, <laughs> right? <laughs> These aren't bad. They become problematic, though, uh, when they are disconnected uh, from the larger story. Here, And the larger story is not just, you know, kind of get this audible awareness, but to hear in such a way that it penetrates our hearts. To believe is not just, oh, I think, uh, I believe in my mind that that Jesus is divine, but to believe is to trust, to trust with your life on the line. This is what I'm gonna give my life to. I'm gonna pursue this social, physical, spiritual restoration, uh, in the way that Jesus pursued it, with mercy and justice and courage and sacrifice and humility. Uh, so here, uh, believe, uh, confess. We're not just saying the words, but this is confessing with our life. And confession is, um, we might think of as a confession of allegiance, right? A, a swearing an oath of loyalty to our King and our Lord. To confess Jesus is Lord is not to confess that just Jesus is divine. He is God, but to confess He is Lord, as in Master, and I am His servant. Hear so to penetrate your heart. Um, uh, believe, trust it with your life. Confess a confession of allegiance. Repent. Orient your life around this reality. Not feel bad only, but orient your life around this reality. And then baptism is about um, washing, not only washing off the sin, but dying to one set of allegiances. Uh, one way of being in the world and being raised to new life where we are the servants of Christ. Five steps aren't bad. It's bad when it gets divorced from the bigger story. Um, and so it can still speak, it can still um, yeah, shape who we are and how we live in the world. Uh, and so maybe this is one way of thinking about that bullseye. When we know the plot line and uh, we see these recurring patterns that keep showing up again and again, then it helps give us a sense of who we are and who we are to be. But without those things, we can turn it into a checklist that has no impact on our lives or on our world around us uh, and becomes this um, maybe sadly empty kind of thing. Lauren and Matt? Okay. We try to end by
2: 1050, so I'm going to just write something on the board really quickly. Um. I appreciate what Josh is saying about salvation being dynamic, uh, that it has social, physical, and spiritual restoration features. So, one way I, I talk to my theology classes at Lipscomb about how to think about this is you have something that theologians call the Christ event. So, rather than just Christ saves us, you can think of this in terms of the dynamism of it. So, it's his life, death, resurrection. And ascension, the ascension is a really key part of this that we often leave out, is this event, and it defeats sin, evil, and death. So um, I just wanted to kind of foreshadow next week, I'll pick up on this, but all of this defeats all of this. And so I'll get into that more next week, but just kind of bear that in mind.
0: i just finish with a couple of things. I appreciate what Josh said today. It, it made me rethink the way, um, the way we often conceptualize prophecy. Right? We often think of prophecy as, as a calendar with blank dates in it, and we know what's going to happen. We just Somebody forgot to write down when it's going to happen. We think we know what it's going to look like. We think we know everything we need to know except we just don't have the date. But that's not how prophecy works. Prophecy works in hindsight. Right? There's a promise made, something's going to happen, and it seems like in Scripture almost everybody's always wrong about not only when is it going to happen, but what shape it's going to take. So that the prophecy is only clear in hindsight. It's important to remember, I think, that when Matthew or Luke or John are writing about what happened, it's not like they finally can check the box that this is the way they always knew it was going to work out, is that after thinking about this Jesus event for 20 or 30 years, putting together what they know about his life, putting together what they understand about Scripture, that the, that the dramatic logic of Scripture dawned on the Gospel writers, and they can finally say, oh, it's been fulfilled, right? It's not like we all knew this was going to happen that way. They're having to explain backwards what we do what most of us don't really get on the front end. Does that make sense? And that's a, that makes me think about not only prophecy, but also about law. If, if law had a role in under, helping us understand sin, then why do we keep going back to the Scriptures as if they were still a law book? Does that make sense? I'm not saying we shouldn't, but it makes me rethink. If I rethink prophecy and how that works, How should I think about law, especially if Christ came to fulfill the law? And most people at the time thought he came to break it, and it looked like both. How does that affect how I live out my life in Scripture? Hilton's comment made me remember that the the consistent theme we get from Scripture is that the believers, those closest to Christ, always got it wrong. They always thought they knew exactly what was going to happen and what was going to look like. And at that moment, they're consistently told, no, that's, that's not it, which is a humbling thought for me. And last but not least, that emphasis on restoration, that the that the dramatic logic, so to speak, that, that Josh and Lauren have helped us see is that, is that the gospel is about restoration, giving sight to the blind, comfort to the poor, release for the prisoners, not only literally but elsewhere, makes me wonder to what extent my life, if I'm going to participate in this drama that we're calling the kingdom of God, how should my life actively and concretely participate in restoration? Because it's so easy in my tradition and in my life to participate in judgment. It's so easy for me to go that route because I can just tell everybody else what's wrong as opposed to rolling up my hand, my, my sleeves and touching the lepers and the poor, visiting the prisoners. That, that's also a humbling thought for me. And if I keep in mind the way we're trying to approach gospel, that it's active and present it's not yet, it's already. How do we deal with this? It reminds me of being in college. Lee Camp's phrase for this is prolepsis, right? Something that's not yet, but already here. It reminds me of my college students. They're already adults, but we all know, especially if we teach them, they're not yet there. <laughs> but, but that reminds me maybe as a metaphor for how we're living our lives. We're, the kingdom is here, but we're still trying to figure out how to do the kingdom. Does that make sense? That's a comforting thought. Although it still is a very humbling thought. So I'm going to quit there. Does anybody have any other last comments or questions? Dave?
1: I was just going to say that the kingdom of God goes back to what Warren was saying of how Israel, we made it exclusionary when the Goths, when he was wanting to make, make it inclusionary mm-hmm. and how the restoration of all those things and the veil being torn down was very much of a bring people in, not keep people out.
0: Yeah. Inclusion versus exclusion. Well, thank you all for being here today. Thanks for your patience. See you next week.
1: Push (laughs) stop.